Welcome to Real Decarbonization, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. This series of mini pods accompanies my new book, Real Decarbonization, How Oil and Gas Companies Are Seizing the Low Carbon Future. And today's show is different. I speak with Adamantine's director of policy and strategy, Kayla Dolan. So she joins me because we shared a drive <laughs> to Rock Springs, Wyoming to sit in on a focus group about direct air capture projects. And we learned so much that it inspired a series of conversations within our firm about what companies who are planning decarbonization projects need to consider, both in communities that may be hostile to all kinds of building, but even more so in communities that we may take for granted, historic oil and gas communities. So we wrote about this in both True, my weekly email, but it was so interesting and important that we wanted to follow that up with a conversation. You can access the link to both True and our show notes. And here's my conversation with Kayla Dolan talking about our trip to observe a focus group in Wyoming. Kayla Dolan, thank you for joining me on the Real Decarbonization Podcast. Thank you so much, Tisha, for having me. So for our audience, Kayla and I got a lot of great feedback on our recent Both True, which is our weekly email entitled Don't Take Wyoming for Granted. And so we thought we'd just have a conversation here because Kayla and I always learn a lot talking to each other about the work that we do and also bring you, our listeners, along for a deeper dive into this topic. Let's just jump in. And Kayla, I'd love to hear your perspective on what the overall attitude was when we were in Wyoming from this community toward climate and decarbonization in general, and then direct air capture projects specifically? Yeah, I think the attitude was similar for both, but really when talking about climate and decarbonization in general, everyone was skeptical because all they've heard historically with the low carbon transition is they're going to be left out. And so to be brought into a conversation about climate and decarbonization, they were skeptical about what was going to be said, what was there going to be involvement, and what was going to be the outcome. And then flip it, when you talk about direct air capture projects, they were very hesitant. And it wasn't hesitant in the fact that they weren't supportive of the projects, but they were really curious, well, how is this going to affect jobs in our communities? How is it going to affect just at large the community? And then what does that mean in the climate and decarbonization conversation? Because again, they were told they're going to be left out of it. And now all of a sudden they're being told, well, there's an opportunity. And so it was just kind of a lot of skepticism, hesitant, and then maybe some curiosity. Yeah, I really, I totally agree with that. And I think it comes from that place that you and I have observed, which is particularly if you're an organization or, you know, a stakeholder from a left leaning area, you don't necessarily understand how much skepticism is out there about decarbonization in general. Tisha, I'm curious because in your both true, you touch on the steps needed to avoid these pitfalls when engaging with the conservatives in rural communities. So what do you think the pro-DAC team at the focus group could have done differently to get a more positive response? 
Yeah, I think that was just so important for you and I to observe, Kayla, that the team went in assuming that the community was going to be excited about a project because it's a decarbonization project and it would bring jobs. And they just walked in with this assumption. And I think it's actually more important to attend to a community without expectation and with a real sensitivity to getting to know them. So for example, you know, you and I know if we go into a community for an oil and gas project, you go in to say, hey, like what's important to you? What are you worried about? What do you want to know? And that approach has to be adopted also for a decarbonization project anywhere. But if you're going into a conservative community to build off the idea that you raised, Kayla, there's already this skepticism about climate activism and the need to decarbonize. And so I think it's important to go into a community with much more of a listening attitude hey, what do you know about this? What's interesting to you? What's concerning to you? The second thing I really enjoyed watching actually was how sophisticated the community was. So the community you and I were in had had historic coal development, historic oil and gas development, several booms and bust cycles uh, among various energy commodities. And so they really knew the difference between, for example, temporary jobs for construction and permanent jobs for operation. I think actually having savvy focus group moderators who understand energy communities could really make a focus group like that more interesting and more subtle to gather more actual insights. I felt, in fact, in this case, like in many ways, the focus group moderators had more to learn even than the people in the audience did about these kind of projects and this kind of construction. It was so interesting to speak to some of the focus group members about just their knowledge with the technology that I wasn't expecting of how it was going to work, how you could even use some of the CO2 that was going to be captured. So I thought that was fascinating. One of my favorite moments was when someone said, why are you going to dispose of perfectly good CO2? Because they had worked on a project where they were actually producing CO2, geologic CO2 from walls, which we still do in order to do things like for carbonation, for beverages. And so there was a real sort of like misconnect between their lived experience and the expectation that CO2 is a waste product that has to be disposed of, which I thought was interesting. Now, Kayla, we were in Wyoming, but you've worked in North Carolina and Louisiana. And I'm just curious if you, from those experiences, you could even expand upon what we learned to give advice to some of our listeners who might be thinking about going into communities to do engagement, and particularly those that just might not be that receptive to these kind of projects. What do you think companies need to know about how they approach communities to get their their participation and their buy-in. Yeah, it was so interesting when we were sitting in this meeting, I was thinking, oh my gosh, if that was me when I was engaging with communities, what I have done. And the two things that come to mind that I learned firsthand very early on is you got to get boots on the ground in the community. And to your point earlier, go into listening mode. You know, what does the community care about? What is their socioeconomic factors? What's top of mind? Even before you go talking about a project, just understanding what the community is grappling with each and every day. And then on top of that, knowing that the community next to it that you may be engaging as well is going to be 
totally different and are going to have completely unique factors. And then the second piece to that, I would say, is once you gather that information, go in to present your information with just a level of respect for everything that you just learned. Because I found going in with that respect just can change the game and change the approach of how a project gets navigated that I don't think you see happen a lot. Yeah, I love it that you said that because I think that's one of the things that gets lost in the political divides is a mutual respect and an interest, like a curiosity in what the world looks like to those folks that live there. And whether that's inner city or a very rural, untouched landscape or someplace with a lot of history, their history matters. And it's important that we respect what the world looks like from their perspective, even if our politics are totally different. Yeah. And even from my experience going from a state like North Carolina that uses oil and gas and then Louisiana that produces oil and gas, it's totally different. And so just understanding those dynamics, I think are so important. But Tisha, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about environmental justice, which we talk a lot about in your both truths. And you mentioned in your book that all future projects will require some form of engagement with surrounding communities, which I just love. And so I'm just curious, while you were writing the book, what has been your biggest takeaways about articulating the EJ approach? Yeah, I think there's a real difference from today (laughs) forward, which is that communities are going to have to be willing partners, not like passive recipients or like an afterthought of engagement because we own the right of way or the land. But the world has just changed in a way that unless a community wants something to happen, it's probably not going to happen. And environmental justice is really interesting because there's so much work going on and investment into the ideas around historically disadvantaged communities getting to have a say, but also getting to partake in the benefits of energy engagement. I love the work that's going on there. And and as you mentioned, Kayla, we're we're all really involved in being at the forefront of how that's going to be done well and right. And it means that those communities are going to shape and be beneficiaries of whatever projects come their way. The piece that's missing today from the environmental justice conversation, I think, is thinking about this topic beyond urban areas and into rural areas or into areas that also have been economically disadvantaged and possibly economically disadvantaged as a result of the energy transition. So say, you know, a historic coal mining town that has been devastated by the pivot away from from coal production in the U.S. And I think if we think about environmental justice in that context, We'll have to really, one, we'll have to change our language because all these terms are polarizing and they're associated with different kinds of political sides. The fundamental ideas that I think that you've articulated so well, Kayla, really are going to drive all this work, like respect, curiosity, and a willingness and interest to see it from the local point of view, even if that point of view is somewhat foreign, whether it's a focus group moderator or, you know, a company leader, we need to understand what success looks like in that community for that community and co-create that outcome with them. Does that resonate with your experience, Kayla? Do you think these things have fundamentally changed? Oh, completely. And I think 
our visit to Wyoming just really enforced that for me, especially this idea of co-creating, changing the language. I think it's the only path forward. And I think it's exciting that we're having this conversation to hopefully kind of turn the tide and see some positive movement. Well, Kayla, I don't want to spend another Friday night in a car with you driving to Wyoming, but I actually have to admit that it was so fun to spend six hours driving on a Friday night and then having our focus group and then spend six hours driving back, analyzing everything we learned. You know, I just got to know and appreciate you even more as the as the positive rose-colored glasses person that you are. Tell me in this context, what are you feeling most optimistic about? Yeah, I think I kind of touched on it a little bit, and maybe this is too glass half full, but I'm just really optimistic that this conversation about community engagement and co-creating is changing in the fact that we're having more conversations about how to engage, what is the right way to approach communities, and ultimately, I believe these conversations are going to unlock future projects, whether it's CCS, geothermal, hydrogen, or something else. This is the linchpin that we need. And I think the faster and the more open we are to having these conversations, the more we can start reaching some of these low carbon potentials and goals that we have. Yeah, I love that. And like you, a glass half full isn't even enough. Like glass three quarters full, I'm with you. The thing I'm most optimistic about is that because companies are looking at this differently, because policymakers are deeply respecting both the need for us to build things and for communities to participate, I feel like we have the opportunity to recreate this idea that empowers companies to build the things that need to be built and communities to be beneficiaries of that work. So I'm really excited about that. Kayla, did I get to ask you everything I should have? Anything else you want to add to today's episode? No, I just want to say for those of you that get the opportunity to spend six hours in a car with your boss on Friday night, it's exciting and great for your career. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Kayla. Thanks so much for joining me on the Real Decarbonization Podcast. Thank you for having me, Tisha. It's been so fun. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Kayla Dolan for joining me. I hope you'll take a moment and rate and review Real Decarbonization and forward it to a few of your colleagues who you think would enjoy it. You can learn more about my new book at realdecarbonization.com and our work at adamantine at energythinks.com. Thanks so much to Adan Rubio who makes all things of this podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.